Hey, Jeff Johnston here. Thanks for being on the Living Undeterred podcast today, catching us on all of our social media platforms. Super excited to talk to Derek Kidd today. Um, Derek and I are members of a club we didn't ask to join. One we can never leave. And unfortunately, him and I both are meeting people uh, in the similar positions every single day. Derek, there's 822 Americans die by overdose, suicide, and alcohol today in the United States. Uh, 800 in 22. Last summer, when I was going around the country in our RV, I was quoting a number of 800. Now it's 822. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of options on the table to save lives. I think it's all hands on deck, as you and I talked to in our pre-interview. Um, but before we get into the real heavy stuff, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk about you and why I specifically wanted you to come on the show. You are in Des Moines, which is great. Most of my guests are not local, uh, as in as in the same state that I reside in here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, but you and I met under situations where we would have preferred different environments, but here we are. Uh, and so with that, you know, welcome to the show, Derek. And I'm I, again, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, seems like you're trying your best to lean into it like we are as well. Um, but we'll get to all that. So thanks for being on the show, Derek. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about you. Let's go back in time. Now this wasn't too long ago. Mine was six years ago. Um, yours is, it was much more recent, but let's talk about what happened to you. What, what was, what was the event that happened in your life that, um, that led us to this conversation today? Well, I was, uh, somewhat blindsided, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, July of 2021, uh, my son passed away and it was, it was, uh, it definitely caught us off guard. Things were going very well for him, at least, uh, they appeared to be on the outside. Uh, we knew that he struggled with a lot of things, uh, you know, throughout his life. We just didn't really understand that, you know, the impact that it had on him over the years. Uh, I guess I didn't understand the impact and that's kind of what led me down this, this mm -hmm. path. Uh, he had a lot of things going on in his life, uh, went through a lot of, uh, you know, divorce and, and, and bullying issues and abandonment right. and, and all that stuff. And then he had some physical issues, surgeries, broken collarbone and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I don't really know. He started, uh, I guess he started taking pills that summer and, uh, Percocet to relieve himself. And he got a bad one. He got one that was, uh, fake you know, mm. pressed fentanyl and, and, uh, took his life mm -hmm. almost instantly. So I don't know if he was self-medicating mm -hmm. because of the, you know, some of the, the mental stress that he was going through or physical pain or whatever. It doesn't really matter at this point, but mm -hmm. I knew that he was, I knew, know that he was struggling. And I know that he, you know, after talking to a lot of his friends that he was, um, I, I think that he was dealing with a lot more pain than I had, than I had, uh, imagined. And, that led me here. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think you and I both have similar perspectives. You know, um, I kind of look back on our situation with Seth and same thing, pain issues. Um, I think he had some elements of body dysmorphia, which now I, I learned about since he's passed, um, you know, just a lack of confidence in the way he looked and, and, 
You know, there's signals, there's signs, but there's no template, right, Derek? I mean, you go through this whole thing as a parent and you try to help the next parent that's going through similar situations, but there's no template. There's no book that says, hey, Derek, here's what you need to do at this moment, at this time, at this age. You know, what what advice would you give to parents right now that, you know, are basically where you and I were uh, years ago before our, our sons died? That is the answer. <clears throat> um, or that is the question, I should say. So, yeah, I have, uh, I've realized that, you know, I think this goes with anything, unless you've been through it, uh, you don't really understand, you don't have an, uh, an appreciation for, right. for things. And you, you don't, I mean, I'll give you an example. So I know that my kids, both my kids, I have a daughter that's 27. Um, both of my, my children okay. battled depression. And I had, mm -hmm. I had dealt with a lot of things throughout my life that, uh, you know, that they, they took their toll on me and I had been depressed mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd been through loss and, and, and tragedies and, and whatnot. But, um, I, I had been depressed and I worked my way out of it. And, you know, my, my, my kids were diagnosed with depression. I didn't understand the difference. Mm -hmm. And until I, until I lost my son yeah. and, 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 and actually, you know, went into a depression, uh, I don't know that I, that I'll ever battle out of that, but, um, I didn't understand. So mm -hmm. when you lose a child, unless you've lost a child, you can't possibly understand. So trying to, trying to get a message across to people about, for instance, you know, fentanyl and the dangers of that, it's difficult to convey that message to somebody because they they don't really understand. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're talking about the importance of this, the importance of that, uh, you know, with your children or anybody for that matter, um, it's unless they've been through something like that, you know, you can explain it to them, but I don't know that they were truly understand mm -hmm. and take your words to heart until something like that happens to them. So it's hard. Yeah, and there's so much stigma associated with these things, you know, if, I keep thinking if Seth would have died from cancer or a car accident or, you know, something that would gain or garner the sympathy and the empathy from society, you know, but he didn't, he overdosed in a, you know, seedy hotel room in Waterloo, Iowa with a needle in his arm, you know, mm -hmm. and that is the stigma that holds us back from advancing through some of these um, you know, ways that we look at this to try to help people. Um, you know, death is death. And I know anybody out there has lost anybody. Like you just said a little, little bit ago, it, it doesn't matter. Well, it, it doesn't matter. You're right. I mean, it's, they're still gone, but I think if we can kind of peel back the layers and go back to how this unfolded there, you know, I know with our son, I, I know with yours as well. And many, many listening to this podcast, there are, there are warning signs there's, there's opportunities to intervene, you know, to have the interventions, to get them to see they're making poor choices. But then again, until that person wants to take, you know, the bull by the horns, as they say, to, to make that decision to not dabble in these things. Like I used to tell my son all the time, it's like, you know, Seth, if it's not this, it's not that it's going to be something and you're on that road. 
you're on that road. You've been arrested. You've been to prison. You've overdosed. You've had the drunk driving. You've, you know, what makes you think that the next one that happened, the next thing that happens isn't going to be your last. And so we had these conversations, but that tells you how strong the addictions and the substance use distress problem we have in our country is that, you know, you get into things like heroin and meth and they're so, and fentanyl, they're so addictive. You know, in your case, you know, just like a lot of parents I meet, there's a new dynamic in overdose deaths, it, literally poisoning, I guess I, I'd, I'd like to say, is that, you know, a lot of times there's kids that don't have substance abuse problems. They don't have the addiction issues. They just take a Percocet or take an Adderall because they want to stay up and study or something. And it's got fentanyl um, and they're gone. So do you think there's a different audience out there that you're trying to speak to in regards to your case and your situation that you're trying to bring attention to maybe these ice, not isolated, but these instances where, you know, unlike my son who died, he, he really had a substance abuse problem for a long period of time, but there's a lot of kids today that don't have any problems. It's just their first time they've tried these things and it's their last. Well, I, I think, I think that right there is part of the problem. Uh, I don't think that there is a difference between my son and yours. Um, this one of the things that we are, you know, when this first happened, I, I hoped <laughs> as bad as that sounds, because my son was already gone. I hoped that it was something medical. I hoped that it was something, uh, you know, because he had sustained that we know of, you know, six concussions and two of them were very violent. <clears throat> and th those mm. could have played a part in his, in his decision-making sure. process, excuse me. <clears throat> However, um, you know, once I came to the realization that it was fentanyl and that it was him mm -hmm. taking a pill and all that, I started to do a little, a little research and then I, then I couldn't get away from it. And it, it took mm -hmm. me a long time, but I've, you know, I have a lot of guilt as a parent just because there's always something we think we can do. But the bottom line, where, where I'm at with all this is I truly believe that after doing my research that, you know, there's, there, there are underlying issues with everyone <clears throat> and our brains are not mm -hmm. the same. Our thought process is not the same. Our experiences, uh, our social circles are, are not the same. So when you, when you talk, when you, you know, when you compare somebody that is, uh, has substance abuse disorder and somebody that maybe just did it for, you know, the first time or a couple weeks or a couple months. Uh, there's a reason right. that they both tried something. There's a reason it doesn't matter what stage of life that they're in. My son very easily, in, you know, in a matter of months or a couple of years could have developed a very serious problem, but it's the underlying issues mm -hmm. for my son and your son as to what got mm -hmm. them there why they made that decision. So mm -hmm. my path is one that, you know, I, I'm focused on getting our message out there and I'm working with some, you know, some companies and, and the governor's office and whatnot to, to try and, and, and warn people of the immediate dangers of some of this to save, save a few lives. But my long-term goal is to, is to, you know, get a hold of the students. Uh, and more importantly, because it starts before that, it starts with the parents and the adults, the teachers, the coaches, um, you know, developing these children. Mm -hmm. So, so they have the support system. So they're, you know, maybe they're not in a position where they make that decision for the first time. 
Yeah, you bring up a good point. I had a guest on last week that talked about the breakdown of the family structure in the United States and, um, you know, with um, lots of kids growing up in single households where there's, you know, substance abuse, um, you know, lack of employment, a lot of financial stress. Um, and so these kids grow up in these environments, but again, that doesn't justify or validate why kids still, there's lots of kids that grow up in those environments that don't ever go down those roads too. You know, you could find evidence. That's where the argument with, you know, is addiction a disease or addiction a choice? I, I think the question is wrong. I think we frame it wrong. I think it should be not is, but it is a combination of nature and nurture, you know? Um, there's plenty of evidence of kids that grew up in very horrific environments that never did drugs and had productive lives. And there's kids that grew up in perfect environments, you know, the leave it the beaver family situation that went down those roads. So I think today with, and I'll see what your thoughts are on this, but with like Gen Z seems to be right now where the fentanyl overdoses are the highest. It's the largest percentage of deaths in right now is, uh, 18 to 23 I think, I think I just saw that this morning for fentanyl overdose deaths specifically, it's, it's right smack in the middle of Gen Z, which is, you know, the ages where our sons were, um, your son was, how old was your son? He was again? 17. That's what I thought. 17. So yeah, my son was 23. So he was on the other end of that little statistic. Basically they say 18 to 23. Um, you know, I guess, so where are your efforts focused right now as a, as an advocate dad, as somebody that has, you know, looked back and learned a lot from this experience that you went through, where is your advocacy most needed in your opinion? I, I think it's with, honestly, it's getting to the parents through the students. Uh, the best way that we can, because I, I think that it goes back further than, you know, it's not, it's not something that starts in high school or even, even after that it's, it's when these kids are young. And I yeah. think that this has been, yeah. you know, an ongoing developing problem for the last couple of decades with, and I, and I know people don't want to look at themselves. Um, it, it, that's, it's tough. You know, it, it's tough to think about uh, some of the decision-making, um, you know, that that's, it's in our hands that, that, that causes some of the pain with our kids. I, I loved my son, like, like nobody else in this world. Um, he was my, he was my pride and joy, but I will tell you that as a parent and as a, as a coach, I coached him for 10 years. There were some things that I did wrong. Mm. There were some things that I did wrong. Now that's not to say that mm -hmm. every parent doesn't do some things wrong. Right. But just little mm -hmm. things here and there, you know, how I handled uh, my divorce, um, how I handled him on the field, mm -hmm. how I handled certain situations and that in combination with how he was treated in other situations by other people, um, helped develop him mm -hmm. and, and his, his confidence. And he was a confident kid on the outside, but his, his, his confidence, mm -hmm. um, his self-worth, uh, his, you know, how he handled certain situations, how he handled his anger, um, a, a lot of things. And ultimately as his father, you know, I I'm responsible for a great majority of that. So we're not perfect, but I wish that I had read a lot more before my son was born, mm. you know, and then Me continued too. to read, 
um, as he was growing up, because there is so much that I didn't understand about mm -hmm. a child's brain and how it works and how it develops. So I think, I think we need to start, yeah, I, I think we need to start with, you know, I, I use these, these presentations to get into the schools, to talk to the students, but truly my, my message is, is geared towards the adults and the parents. Hmm. You know, you and I, I'm 56, um, grew up in a generation where, you know, Bobby Knight and, you know, uh, all those tough minded coaches would yell and scream and get the best idea. And it's like, you know, that's, that's the mindset I grew up is tough it out, you know, just quit being a wuss, you know, uh, pull up your pants, you know, just, these are the phrases that I grew up with that, you know, I don't know if it worked or not, but that's the generation that we grew up in. Now today that approach doesn't work with Gen Z. It just doesn't. They're a little more touchy feely. They're more sensitive. Um, they're more curious in other ways to deal with problems. Um, they're more likely not to take advice from authority, but they will from their peers. So, and again, I've been doing a lot of research on Gen Z because we have some project, we have some initiatives coming out that um, I'll talk, you know, eventually about soon here. Um, our mental health app that we're designing that's geared really towards Gen Z. And when you look at the statistics, you're like, wow, you know, I want to make sure that the, the parents and the people that are designing the curriculum and the education models for these kids, they understand the lens that Gen Z is viewing things from. It's a lot different than from us. Um, and I, I agree with you, Derek. I look back on my raising Seth and I coached him as well. And he had anger issues as well. You know, there's probably so many similarities between our two boys. Um, you know, but I dropped the ball on some things too. You know, I, my biggest regret is he was hyperactive. You know, what 15 year old boy isn't, you know, when they show me a 15 year old boy that doesn't look out the window at school and think about, you know, something non-school related, you know, legs are bouncing up and down, especially with all the freaking sugar and mm -hmm. caffeine they all drink today now in their drinks and their food. And then we just take these labels and we slap them on kids. So Seth was told he had attention deficit. And then my regret, Derek, that I have to take to my grave is that a doctor said, oh, here, take Adderall. And I didn't research it. I just took it for granted that a doctor knew what he was talking about with my son. Now, there are kids where Adderall works great. My son was not one of them. Uh, he, he got Adderall and immediately started abusing it. And then he had withdrawals when he didn't take it. And that just went into getting, a, you know, quote, a higher high and kept ratcheting it up. So if I have one thing I have to say I learned from or I have to take to my grave more dramatically is that I just was very naive on what Adderall is, which if you Google it, it's pretty much watered down meth. I mean, that's, that's what Adderall is. Which is yeah, so frustrating. I, I, you know, I think now, that, now I look back um, and I think, how did I allow that to happen? I I, I think that that just you know that kind of proves proves the point that uh, everybody's brain is different. When you're talking about um, coaching, I don't I don't have a problem with being tough on on the kids. You know, when I was a coach, my my big thing was is I didn't care if you were the star player or if you were somebody that was just getting started. You know, there were little nuances there. I was going to treat you different in, in certain ways, but when it came to, you know, work mm -hmm. ethic and, and everything else, I mean, I was going to treat you the same. I don't care how good you were. 
And mm-hmm. the, the problem is, is if you're going to, if you're going to be the type of coach, it's going to be hard on everybody and that that's fine. But some of these kids, uh, you know, I learned real quick that you, you can't coach them the same because mm. their brains aren't the same. Um, they may not have the same support system. So if, mm. you know, if they, if they feel belittled or not that I ever went out to, you know, belittle any of the, any of my players, but if they felt like they were being, uh, targeted in a situation, um, they may not be able to handle that kind of pressure as opposed to somebody else that, you know, that has parents right. at home that grew up there, they were athletes and they, they understand and they talk their kid through it and all that. So that support right. system, you might have two people that are the same, that have the same interactions that have the same, you know, uh, the same settings, but if they don't have the same support systems, they're going to react to things differently. Um, in regards to the medications, I, I think that's exactly the same thing. You've got different brains. They, they react to it differently. Uh, you know, and I, I've, I've talked to our family doctor. He's been a big part of what we're doing. And he was blown away by, by some of this. And he started to take a look at things mm-hmm. himself uh, that he, had, he has a lot of kids. And they've been in a lot of sports and they've had a lot of injuries. And he called me up a couple months ago and said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, I went through my cabinet and I was going through our medications that we were, uh, you know, going to dispose of. And I, I found three that were from similar, uh, similar surgeries and, you know, just similar types of things Mm. that, that their kids went through. And they, one of them had a prescription for 12 pills. One of them had a prescription for 30 pills. Hmm. And one of them had a prescription for 50 pills. That's a problem. Mm. That's a problem. So, you know, we can't a huge problem. We can't pinpoint one thing as, as it being the problem. Um, You know, it's, it's not, it's not just uh, you know, on my end, it's not just a a, a drug problem. It's not uh, a a parental, you know, how we raise our kids problem. It's not a, a, a medical, a pharma problem. It's, it's a combination of, of those and many more. So We've got a huge battle. That's what makes it tough. Yep. That's what makes it so hard, Derek. Um, What role, let me ask you this question. What role does the government play in all this? You know, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day because they wanted to, uh, just from a drug perspective, they wanted to come back, um, and and whether it's illicit or, or legal drugs, they wanted to come back and blame the person that gave them their child's drug, their pill. Sure. And they, I went down that road and I'm sure you did too. You know, I honestly, uh, I gave, I gave my son's phone to the detectives and that was that I never, I never really pursued anything because I, I think it was because I had so much guilt. Um, and I, you know, yeah. there were certain, certain situations in my son's case that I just, I just didn't want to deal with it. You know, I'm in the same boat too. I, when I say I went down the road, Derek, I went down like, you know, halfway down the driveway. Um, and then I just, it was just a rabbit hole. I didn't want to go down. I figured my mindset was the person who got involved in selling this to my son is probably going to meet his, he's probably going to get his pay eventually on the road that he's on, you know, and do I have the time and the resources to be out trying to be Rambo or be a detective when I could be advocating on different things immediately, you know? Yeah. I, I chose to let them do their job. And, and if they, if something came about, then, then that's fine. And I knew nothing, nothing was going to, you know, 
come of it. And I was okay yeah. with that because I had, I had bigger goals in mind, but when you talk about, uh, you know, where does the government have a role? Of course they have a role, but like I told this person, um, where, where does it end? Because if we, if we try and get, and in some cases, these are friends giving themselves or giving their, their friends pills or drugs or whatever. Right. right? So a, as a, Many as cases, a parent, yeah. you know, that's, that's really tough. That's really tough because, right. you know, if we, if we truly look at our, our child, I say child, but anybody's loved one, if we truly look at them and, and think that they had, um, you know, things that they were dealing with, and that's the reason that they started taking something, uh, self-medicating, then uh-huh. that person on the other end that sold them or gave them something, they might be in the same boat. So if I'm going to have, you know, if I'm going to be uh-huh. sympathetic with my, my son's situation and, and make justifications for thing, then I can't uh-huh. judge that person. Um, and, it, and if you're going to do that, if you're going to go after the person perspective, yep. If you're going to go after the person that gave them that drug, then where does it end? Does it, you know, do you go after the the bigger drug dealer? Do you go after the gangs? Do you go after the cartels? And then do you come back and you go after our government? Do you go after our politicians? I mean, they, they all, they all have a role in it, right? You know, the big pharma. Yeah. I mean, where does it end? You got me thinking about that. You got me thinking about that because we as parents want to say, oh, it's our, it's our son or daughter's peer group or, you know, maybe, maybe it's your son or daughter that's the negative peer group. And we don't want to ever think that because everybody thinks that my son or daughter wasn't culpable at all in this and that somebody else brought them into this evil you know, road that they're on. Where in reality is if your kid is buying something, there is a statistical chance that that person is also selling something. Now, it doesn't have to be like they're a drug dealer, but you know, Adderall is prescribed to adults more than kids. So where do you think kids are getting Adderall? You think they're getting it from their peer group or you think they're taking it from mom and dad's medicine cabinet with the lorazepam, with the Xanax, with the everything else that mom and dad are taking because they're so, you know, they're medicated very heavily. Our generation is. Um, when my wife died, Derek, she had a bag of meds next to her bed that I bet there was 15 prescription bottles in that bag. I still have the bag. I haven't, I should just, you know, anyway, I won't go down that road, but I researched all the different meds she had because I wanted to see where all this came from. And I didn't know if she was taking them. We were going through a separation, so I wasn't monitoring her drug intake at the time, but she could have been taking four or five simultaneously with, with her alcohol. I have, I just don't know, but I got to thinking that if there would have been a teenager in the house, they could have just walked in, taken a handful of pills from my wife's medicine cabinet, went to school, sold them for $20. Some other kids throw in a couple fake ones that they bought on the internet. You know, kids will say, oh yeah, I bought them from my friend and my friend said they got them legitimately. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your kid, your friends are telling you the truth just like you tell everybody else the truth. I mean, I don't know. I, I, the reason I bring that up is I think when you mentioned that, the selling part, I got to thinking to myself, you know, don't, I'm not saying that kids, your kid or any kids doing this, but let's not be naive as parents and not think that if my kid could buy a pill, they also very likely could have at some point sold a pill as well with no intentions of killing somebody. But like you said, could have accidentally had fentanyl in it. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I think I've, I'm with you. I've been in some of those chat rooms with some of these parents that are really, really strong in trying to find the one person that sold them the drug to prosecute them. And, and that's if they find them and they do it, then that power to them. That's awesome. But how about the one that sold them before that, the one that sold them before that? And maybe it's possible your son or daughter was implicit in selling some as well. I, I mean, I think it's just, I don't know. I have a very open mind on this whole thing now. I, 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 um, I'm very, very trying to be very open-minded on this. You know, I'm tired of people dying just like you are tired of people dying. Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think that there are, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with holding somebody accountable. You know, it's, it's, it's no different mm-hmm. than any other crime. If you're a, if you make a mistake and you are a first offender, um, you're going to get a very light sentence slap on the wrist. Uh, you know, and I understand that in some of these cases, there are kids dying and that's, I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be, if they get caught, that they shouldn't be punished. Um, but when you're talking about a teenager giving mm-hmm. a teenager a you pill, you, you have to be careful there. If you're talking about somebody that is a convicted felon selling drugs, then I think right. that's a different story. But, you know, where or, or get gets caught with a huge quantity of illegal drugs, you know, versus a kid that has one pill at school. And again, I, I mean, I, you and I have a dog in the hunt. <laughs> We've lost somebody. So I think we have a right to have these opinions. If you and I are two parents that have never lost someone to overdose, you know, maybe what we're saying isn't as uh, doesn't have the, the weight of validity, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, um, you know, we, we have some skin in the game, literally. And I think we're entitled. We, as I like to say, we, we have we have a seat at the table. You and I have a seat at the table. We should be able to say what we think our thoughts are and, you know, ways that we're trying to look at this in a way that we don't have to defend our position. And I think sometimes as parents, if I go on social media and make a statement about, oh, let's, you know, I don't think we should make it a weapon of mass destruction. You make some statement like that, all of a sudden everyone just jumps on you, you know, and we get so distracted sometimes on what the bigger purpose should be. And that's figuring out why our kids are taking these things in the first place. Well, I I've watched, I've watched dozens, well, probably hundreds up to this point of people that have gone through this and commented on sentencing, um, you know, how many years people have gotten and what's and it's the same answer every time it isn't enough, you know, so true. What is enough? What is enough? How many years are going to be enough? You know, are, are you wanting them to have their life taken from them? But that's not going to bring your child back. Um, and, and a lot of these people, yeah. you know, a lot of these and people is it a, are, is it a, is I it don't a want deterrent? to say it, it might be a deterrent for them, but it's not, there, there's so many people that are willing to take that chance right now. There's other things that need to happen. I mean, I just saw, right you know, that we've got, um, we've got Americans that are driving down to the border, you know, uh, risking being caught because of the, 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 mm-hmm. uh, because of the laws, basically, um, they're risking being caught for human smuggling and drug smuggling because of what they're getting paid to do it. Um, you know, and, until we change mm-hmm. 
change the laws until we start to enforce the laws uh, until we make them strong enough where they are a deterrent a deterrent for the common individual you know when we've got everyday people willing to take that risk th there's a problem there so the, the deterrent obviously right. isn't isn't big enough um, and we can't work well, on things paid on so the much. other side of things right right it's worth right. the risk you know, they're getting paid so much for that risk because it is illegal. And this is where the argument comes in for people that are the decriminalization and legalization. They're separate words, but they, they, they basically represent this idea, the movement out there that, hey, you know, the reason why these prices are so, you know, is that they're, they are illegal. You know, fentanyl basically was put into prescription illicitly because of this market that was provided by our our ability to change the laws and cut prescription opioids in half and that that took the amount of opioids on the market off the table which the assumption is oh that'll save lives but the reality is the drug dealers saw that as an ample opportunity to make stronger more addictive pills and they added fentanyl and then flooded the market with that to pick up that gap because people needed pain management, people that were legitimately taking Oxycontin that, that were taking it responsibly, all of a sudden now they, they couldn't get it. Um, and so they went to the street and that's what humans do. That's what prohibition did. Um, and I think um, we need to be hypersensitive of this linear relationship where there's a cause and effect. If we do X, Y will happen for sure. We cut opioids in half, deaths will drop. Well, they didn't. They went up 100%. So it's, I think... You know, that's where people that are very clear cut on laws and they say, well, we need to have stronger. It's like, yeah, that may look like on the surface it works, but what's the what's the evidence really show that it does? And I don't know. I'm not an expert, man. I'm just a dad from Iowa, Derek. I I don't know. I'm I'm super perplexed. I'm super curious. Um, I don't think I take positions, I guess, but I'm really open to saving lives. That's what I want to do. And if someone can convince me that less drug laws will help, then I'm for it. If someone says stronger drug laws would help, I'm, I'm for it. As long as I see the evidence or there's some history that these ideas work, but it just seems like our society is so knee-jerk reaction, you know, and the drug cartels are so far ahead that they're going to move on from fentanyl here shortly. And I, I think ISO is already a drug that's starting to get into the market that's, I don't know, what is it, 50 times stronger than fentanyl? Like we even something like that. Yeah. Needs as if we need something, some point, something strong. At some point. Yeah, exactly. If it's 50 times or a thousand times, what's the difference? You're dead either way. Yeah. I, you know, I think I, I read that uh, the average pill costs them. I think it's like 15 cents or somewhere, somewhere around there. So as long as they're making yeah. those kind of margins, I mean, we're, we're always going to have a problem there. It's just, it's, it's changed right. over the decades. Um, it's, and, and now because of the, you know, how, how cheap it is, it's, and how easy it is and how accessible it is. Um, it's, I, I honestly don't know how you stop it, but when you have, when you have politicians, uh, that it takes so long to get things done and then they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not even necessarily doing the things to, you know, to, to help fix the problem. We're not going to get rid of the problem, but we can minimize the problem, but they're not even willing to do that. Um, I don't know. The problem is that the 
problem changes too, right. Derek. That's the thing. The the fact you're right. It takes government so long. By the time they finally make a decision, the decision they're making the problem on is moved to something else. It's like the goalpost in the middle of the game. They, the referees are moving the goalpost around for the kicker, and he's like doesn't know where to go in the middle of the game. And that's kind of how we treat this right now. And it's like, we need quicker responses to these things um, in real time. And then kind of maybe at that point, deal with the consequences of those decisions, but the, our inability to make any decisions is costing lives. I mean, I don't know what the, I know what the total number is for alcohol overdose and death, but do you know the daily number for deaths in the United States for overdose? Is it, in the 300 range or 200 it's i mean it obviously it varies in the United States it's daily between two and 300 a day yeah but for every freaking day mm-hmm. that the government's out there passing paper around debating people yelling about all these things and, and everyone's on social media screaming at each other every freaking day two 250 280 americans are are dying by overdose and every day that's why you get so, these. Yeah, we, we have to move up. We have to move up the timetable. Yep. That's why you get these parents that are upset that, you know, every time we see something on the news and, and I, you know, we've been on the news several times mm. along with hundreds of other parents out there. But every time you see something on the news right. where they give it so much, uh, not to take away from somebody else's yep. loss. Okay. But they give it so much media, yep, media it. time. Um, it's frustrating. Right. When you've got, you know, these two people died, these three people died, these four people died, but you've got 200 other people that died yesterday, today, tomorrow that they're not focused on, <laughs> you know? And, and I, 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 saw I know the reason, I know <laughs> the reason why, and it, it's very, it's very frustrating. Um, as you alluded to earlier, you know, if, if our sons were a victim of a drunk driver or if they were attacked, right. you know, and stabbed or shot or something, then they would be mm-hmm. considered victims and they would be mourned as such. But since they took right. something themselves, even, even in, 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 in my son's case, right. you know, he didn't mean to take something. He, he purchased one thing, got something else. It doesn't matter, but because they did it to themselves, Correct. regardless of right. the reason they're no longer a victim. And that's, right. that's not right. That's not right. Perfectly explained. I, couldn't have said it any better, Derek. And that, that, that's, that's one of my frustrations as well. Um, and, uh, something I'm trying to change with stigmas and labels. Uh, and, and that goes with, you know, even, even suicide in a way, you know, pe- people have less sympathy for kids that take their own lives because, Hey, you know, they, they did it to themselves. You know, it's like where someone same age is hit by a car you know, oh man, that's, that's, that's horrendous, you know, but you know, it's still, it's still two events that happened and two people died, but society just looks at him so differently. And I don't know. Anyway, um, what role does the school system have? The educational system have, we've talked about the government. We've kind of talked about the family unit. But now let's talk about the school, the education system in the United States. What role do they have to play in this mental health crisis that we have? Well, I think the school role is huge. Um, As do I. I, 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 look, I look at it from a couple of different perspectives, and, and, and that's because my, my son went through uh, – he, he went through some very traumatic things in school um, that I, I know that they affected him. 
um, you know, the schools have a have a huge mm-hmm. role in in protecting these children, in protecting them physically and, and in protecting them emotionally. Um, it's not just a learning center. And, you know, for some of these kids, that's their safe haven. You know, they don't they don't have uh, they don't have the home life that we all hope that they would. And when they go to school, that's their safe place supposed to be. Right. Um, that's where they you know, right. they have people that are trying to uh, you know, that believe in them that uh, whether it's academically or, you know, athletically um, or, or something else. And when I went to school, you know, I, I looked up to several of my teachers. Um, you know, it's, I just, yeah, and, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't some great teachers out there, but there's a lot of negativity and, and a lot of that's the parents' fault too, right? But I, I just think that our schools have a bigger mm-hmm. role in all this uh, aside from the drug and alcohol education um the whole mental health thing is 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 key and i I can i can tell you firsthand um some of the stuff that i've seen these teachers these coaches uh they they need to be educated they need there there are some things going on with these kids that they allow um that some of them even encourage Mm. and it's it's harmful it's harmful. Mm-hmm. You know, we wonder why we have, uh, you know, teenagers, school shootings, you know, it just, we, we all play a role. Mm-hmm. Um, the parents, the teachers, the coaches, mm-hmm. all of us. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, you go back and look at, um, a school system, the educational system, like you said, a lot of kids are, that's their safe place. They're coming from a home that's very disrupted from, you know, drugs, alcohol, money, whatever. And so they come to school and, you know, the difference between say Gen Z versus my generation or yours is they can't ever really get away from what's going on because their cell phone follows them everywhere. And so the cell phone has become this, this thing that at times is their best friend. And then, many times is their worst enemy because they're addicted to the cell phone. And how do we take the cell phone and turn it into their biggest ally? I think that's the, that's the real question that I think society needs to look at is how do we, how do we get generation Z? Cause you know, telling them not to use their cell phone, Derek, isn't going to work. I mean, go, go to your 18 year old and say, Hey, you know, you need to cut your TikTok usage down, you know, see how well that goes. So instead of fighting that, you know, maybe we can have programs developed on their cell phones that are not clinical They're, You know, if you look at the, if you look at the statistics again with Gen Z, that I think is very interesting is 82% of the time they spend on social media is entertainment. It's not education. So if you're designing programs for kids to utilize on their phones, websites or whatever, and you're not taking advantage of that information, you're going to miss them. So you could have the greatest website to educate. You could have the greatest presentation to educate kids, but that's not what they're using social media for. They're using it for entertainment. So how do you make something that's entertaining, but educational at the same time? I'm very, very intrigued by that. Well, I have my own opinions on the whole phone thing. Um, I'll just, I'll give you, 
<laughs> well, that's why I have my, you on my show, you know, Derek. I want to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs> so when my wife and I, uh, she's going to kill me for saying this. When my wife and I first got married, um, <laughs> we, you know, we, we, we did everything together. I mean, we, we still do, but we didn't have, uh, you know, internet on our, on our phones, not to the, the, the degree that we have now. And we used to watch right. movies together. We used to lay on the couch and do crosswords mm -hmm. together. That was our thing. Um, you know, and it gave us a sense right. of, of closeness and we, we would talk and, um, you know, my wife and I work together every day I and mean, we're, we're together probably more than, than most couples. We work together. We live together. We play together. I mean, we're, right. we're constantly together. However, I don't know that we've ever been further apart than, than we've been the last few years. No, I get it. And it's because of our phones Yep. because, you know, when, even yeah. when she's getting ready in the bathroom, I'll say something to her and she's got her headphones in listening to a, a show or listening to a podcast yeah. or listening to something else. Right. So they're, right. they're, she's present. And, and I, I'm the same way. I, you know, I, I'm on my I am too. <laughs> social media apps and, and, yep. you know, or playing games or whatever. Yep. And so I, I not saying it's just her, I'm just giving you my perspective. Uh, but right. So we're, we're here, we're together, but we're not present. And so, yeah. you know, and, and I know that our connection has suffered because of it. Um, yeah. we, we don't, you know, we're, we're just, I don't feel like we're as close as we used to be sometimes. And there's, you know, there's a lot of stress factors that go in there. So it's, it's not just one thing, but I know that phone. So was, how do you fix that? <laughs> get rid of the phones. Um, but my point is, is that I think that these, you know, these kids are growing up in a different time and they, they can't get rid of the phones. You know, the schools, encourage use of the phones. You get your homework on, you, you know, do certain things on the phones and whatever, so that they actually mm -hmm. encourage the use of them. I think mm -hmm. it's, that's a, that's a huge part of the problem with the mental health is they're not getting the connection. They're not getting the face to face. They're not getting the, um, even if it's as much as, you know, and I, I'm sure you've had this problem before when you text somebody or email somebody and it's taken out of context. Um, you know, cause you don't have the, the, yeah. Or they don't respond for some legitimate reason and you think they're mad at you. Right. Right. You, you can't hear their voice, you know, the fluctuation in their voice. You can't see their facial expressions. Right. You can't, you don't know that they're joking or you don't know that right. they're serious or, um, it's a huge problem. Right. It's a huge problem. And we wonder why our kids have so many mental health issues. Well, I'll tell you right now, that phone, that phone is a huge part of the problem. Yeah. And so that goes back to the question. It's like, you know, I don't think we're going to get them to give up their phones. We're not going to have them lessen the amount of time. So we got to make sure that they're spending on the right apps, the right things that they can actually improve their lives on. I don't know what those answers are at this point, but I think that's where people that are designing the next level of tools and items that kids can use need to have really taken into consideration these challenges that we have. But as we wrap up this show, um, what's on your plate in this year? I mean, we're, we're in 2023 now and, you know, you and I are both kind of designing our own agendas, but trying to collaborate, you know, you and I, I hope can do some work together this, this year and going forward. What, what are some immediate projects you're working on or what, what are some things you want to share with uh, the listeners and followers in regards to what you're doing now? 
Well, we finally have our, our website. Uh, it'll never be done. It's constantly being updated, but it's, it's to the point now. I've got my second presentation to put on there, the adult version. Um, my main focus this year is to partner with a few other groups, and I have some meetings this month, uh, finally, to continue to do these, uh, these school presentations and the community presentations. Um, it has been a very mm -hmm. slow process. Trying to get into the school systems is tough. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's why we're trying to work with the governor's yeah. team on, to, on setting something up. Uh, I know it'll help. It's not a, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a solution to anything, but it, it, it will save lives. Mm -hmm. It will open some eyes. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things is I've, I've given this presentation to administrations before just to let them take a look at things. And I've had some just, I mean, their eyes were wide open halfway through it. They couldn't get enough of it. And then, right. and then they didn't let us in the school for whatever reason, for policy or, or, yeah. you know, time constraints or whatever. It's just such a, yeah. I mean, are how, you know, just, aren't the that, kids important? That, it's, I don't, you know, 45 minutes, right. you know, so it's, 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 we're having to go above, above their heads to try and help us get into the schools. And I, I know that if we do, we get a, you know, get a few more done, hopefully it'll snowball, but that's, that's really where my focus is. That's what my purpose is right now. Um, and beyond that, uh, just continuing to educate people. Well, I, I'm happy our paths crossed. I mean, you know, I've been on this mental health advocacy journey now for five years, probably. Um, and I can tell you that each day I get more excited because I meet more people. And, you know, there's an old saying in life that as you get older, your circle of friends diminishes minus quadrupled. I can't even tell you how many more friends and people I have now, maybe the close ones that doesn't change. Maybe that diminishes like your closest friends. But I will tell you though, mine has expanded. I mean, if I was suicidal today, um, I could call a hundred people that I trust. I'm not lying. I could call a hundred people. Um, of those hundred that I would say would be my you know best friends would be, you know, five, but I have people that I trust. I met through my advocacy, through the podcast, through the tour that had none of this happened. I think I, 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 I don't even know how to say this because it sounds so terrible, but I'm a better person today than I was before all this happened to me. Um, I can't explain it. I, I just can't. I, I hate to even say that because it sounds so how can you be a better person? Well, better, I'm, I'm defining better differently maybe than the average person is. That's how I define better. I, I have more meaning. I have more purpose. I respect relationships more. I'm more in the now. Like right now, you're getting my full attention. I'm not on my cell phone. I'm not looking at my schedule. I'm not thinking about anything other than our conversation for 45 to 50 minutes and, and you're getting my, my best shot today. And that's how I treat now everybody I meet. And it took having people taken from my life for me to realize how important the people are that are in my life. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it, it is sad. It is sad. I, I have, uh, mm -hmm. I have a strong faith 
And it doesn't mean that I don't want my son here. Um, I would trade anything to have him here, mm-hmm. but I know, I know that he was going through some pain and, you know, I, I try to, I try to appreciate the fact that he's with God now. Um, but I, you know, his, his death changed me as a person. It, uh, it didn't make me bitter. It didn't make me angry. Um, I've never, I've never, mm-hmm. you know, been angry at any, any person other than myself. Um, certainly not angry at God, but it has, you know, I made a promise to my son to be a better man, be a better father, be a better husband, be a better person. Mm. And I, I live with that every single day. And I look at people differently. I look at mental health differently. I look at users differently. I understand that, you, you know, you don't, mm. you don't know their pain. You don't know what somebody's going through. So every single person, I don't care if it's somebody that's, you know, upset in the grocery store or whatever, you don't know what they're going through that day. They may have just lost a spouse or something. You don't know. So I just look at the world differently. Um, It it makes me feel on both ends of the spectrum a little bit stronger. Um, I cry a little more. I, you know, I I feel Mm -hmm. for people a lot more. So um, I have, I have really bad days as I'm sure you do, but I have Mm -hmm. days where, you know, I just, I smile a lot when you wouldn't think that I would just because I appreciate things a lot more. Boy, isn't that so true? You look at the, a dog in the backyard and you just smile. Sometimes you're like, wow, I, I'm here. I can witness this, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, um, no, I'm, I'm happy the way you kind of wrapped that up today because I, (laughs) it's just, I don't know. I know our, I know our sons are very proud of us. Uh, my wife, I, I know she is as well. Um, and that's what keeps me going. It's like, I can run out of a lot of things in my life, but I really doubt I'm ever going to run out of gratitude and and, and passion. I just can't see me waking up one day saying, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I, what I've learned, Derek, and then we'll wrap this up. I've learned that the old Jeff Johnston was a consumer. I consumed material items. I consumed time. I consumed attention. And then when these things happened, I went from more of an observer, you know, more of somebody who's giving instead of taking. And so through advocacy, through all the work that we do to, to bring attention to these issues, it makes you feel good. And our boys aren't coming back, but there's no shame in us trying to feel good, you know, while we're still here, you know, I mean, self-care is so important in this well, for everybody, not just mental health advocates, but for anybody, self-care is big. But how do people reach you? What's the easiest way for people to reach Derek Kidd? Uh, they can go to our becometheirvoice.org website, and there is an email at the bottom of the website if they want to contact me. That's probably the easiest. Well, listen, Derek, I love you like a brother, man. Um, keep keep the good fight. Um, keep doing what you're doing. You and I will find some ways to work together in this next year coming up um, that we're now currently in. And uh, thanks for being on the show and uh, keep living undeterred, my friend. Appreciate you having me. Look forward to it.